so that we might be able to approach the Father, which no one had been able to do prior to that. Uh, the Holy of Holies was sacrosanct, and only the high priest could go in once a year on atonement, and that was it. And then it was Christ that was there, there not the Father. So, you start praying to Jesus, you're not praying according to Scripture, or according to God's wish. And you'll notice that a lot of the Protestants, for that matter, kind of bypass the Father. It's, it's all about Jesus, except Jesus, do Jesus, uh, whatever Jesus says. Well, he's the Son, and certainly he is such a very, very important part of the whole thing. The Father and the Son both are. But when we pray, we go clear to the top. We don't leave the Father out. <laughs> when you pray to the Father, you don't leave Jesus or Emmanuel out either. Because it is only through Him that you can go to the Father. So we go to the very top. What could be better than that? But we go through the one immediately below the top. So that both get recognized. And the kind of recognition that they need. So, I was a little bit chagrined and humbled by quoting something that wasn't even in there. <laughs> but we... There are other expressions, they just don't come to mind, that people think are in the Bible that actually aren't in there. And uh, there are a lot of things that are in there they don't know about, too. Well, it works both ways. There's probably, probably a lot more of those, things that are in there they don't know about than things that aren't there that they think they know about. <clears throat> anyway, I'll not make much more comment about uh, announcements, except that the world's still coming apart. Uh, they're saying now we may have a financial crash sometime uh, between Oct middle of October and in into November because of the uh, debt ceiling. Traditionally, they've always talked about that and then raised it, so we'll see what happens. But uh, there are some serious things going on. There's, there's a huge development company in China uh, that is five to six times bigger than Lehman Brothers Bank was that crashed in 2008. And it is on the verge of total bankruptcy. Uh, there are people all over the world that are dependent upon the finances of that company. So who knows what's going to set this thing off, but we know that certainly there will be a financial crash. Zephaniah makes that very clear even though they won't throw the gold and the silver in the street, maybe, it will not save them from the wrath of God. That's the whole point, really. Anyway, let's get back to the book of Amos today. Uh, remember this book, Amos' name, and the book, then, are called Burden. Uh, a burden that we are, and that mankind is, on God. He'll state that here as we go into this today, uh, of why this is a burden. We become a burden to God, and then he lays this burden on mankind, which is what this book is about. And we saw in the first chapter last week that for three and four transgressions, 
He's come down on different peoples, or is coming down on them. Uh, Damascus, uh, maybe representing the Arab world, and then uh, Tyre and Edom or Esau, wherever they are today. And Ammon and Moab then come up next. Ammon in chapter 1 and and Moab in 2. I think one of the reasons they are singled out rather than some of the other nations in the world is it because parts of Edom and Moab and Ammon, I believe, reside in this area. It's the area that Abraham gave Lot a choice in, which land he wanted, and Lot took what he wanted. But there was a great then there was incest after Sodom and Gomorrah between uh, Lot and his daughters. Uh, they he was not the one, evidently, who uh, started the thing, but it was the, the girls who thought all men are dead except our father, and the, the human race is going to continue. Uh, we're going to have to take advantage of that and start repopulating the earth. But I think it started a series of events whereby uh, the demons that affected Joseph Smith in starting the Mormon church uh, were probably present (laughs) with Lot and his daughters. And the Mormon church is known for a lot of incest along with polygamy and all kinds of, of sins along those lines. Although polygamy was not strictly forbidden in the Old Testament, God said he allowed it for the hardness of their hearts. It wasn't what he originally intended from the beginning, because he says Adam and Eve should be with each other until death do you part. Uh, Mankind has had trouble following God's best desires and wishes from Adam and Eve on down. So... He did allow certain things in the Old Testament that he cut off again in the New. Uh, There in Matthew 19, he said, uh, except for some kind of sexual infraction within the marriage, it was one man and one woman. But he did allow uh, dissolving the marriage for that kind of sin because it tears up emotions and people and and children and everything else that you go through, through divorce and everything that comes with it. So it was not God's original intention, and they have made basically a religion of it. Uh, And when you get into Isaiah 15 and 16 and some of those scriptures about Ammon and Moab and their relationship with Israel, it's clear that here at the end they are together and uh, interact with one another. And that's one of the primary reasons, along with the incest and so on, that I think uh, there's a pretty high percentage of Moabites and Ammonites among the Mormons, and also the Edomites from Esau, who hate Jacob, and who are also probably here uh, as well. You see an awful lot of blondes and redheads among the Mormons. Uh, well, Esau was known as the red man, basically, uh, red hairy man, and there's an awful lot of blondes and so on, redheads, through the tribes of Israel. Now, Moab and Ammon are not Israelites, 
but they are of the family of Abraham through Lot. So the coloration of the hair and so on could very easily uh, be there the same uh, because they are generally uh, Caucasian looking and would have the red and the blonde, the blue eyes and so on that we see prevalent in Israel. So some of these who have misused and abused Israel are listed here in Amos in this end time prophecy and I think possibly because of the close association that we have with the Mormon church right here in this area because this is the original promised land and I think Satan brought them back here uh, on purpose because there had been that struggle between Abraham and Lot over the promised land, or at least parts of it. So these age-old difficulties continue, and God makes it clear through the prophecies that Esau is going to be part and parcel with the destruction of this nation. Uh, and even the financial area of it. So these things about the Rothschilds and Edomites in the nation of Israel today and so on are not far-fetched because they fit very closely with the Bible. And we'll, we'll see that perhaps again when we get into Obadiah, uh, what God says about it and what he's going to do about it. So... Edom is very clearly involved, or Esau, with his brother Jacob here at the end time and will oversee our destruction. That means that they are in place today as we sit here in our government with the Rothschilds, with the financial centers of the world, the central banks. They are clearly involved in that, and the scripture backs that up. So it's not conspiracy theory. Anyway, getting into chapter 2, he addresses Moab after having uh, addressed Ammon in the last few verses, the two families that came from Lot's daughters. Thus says the Eternal, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, he says three and four here. He doesn't always name three or four, but he uses that expression to address these different peoples. In other words, they have multiple transgressions, I think is the way you could put that. Whether it's three or five or ten or two uh, matters not really because uh, it's just that there's a lot of transgression. That's the overall point. So for those transgressions, I will not turn away the punishment thereof because he burned the bones of the kings of Edom into lime. Now, you'll notice as we go through these different peoples, these Gentile nations that he's talking about here uh, treated Israel badly, but they also treated each other badly. And God's overall purpose and plan is that we love him above everything and love our neighbor as ourselves. So the whole world is caught up in violence and war and doing terrible things to each other. That's why we don't have peace on earth, is because of Satan's attitude and human nature that he works with to cause 
all the violence within families, within towns, within states, federal governments, and the governments of various nations fighting with each other. There's fighting from beginning to end. I mean, even with little children, they get where they fight, sometimes terribly. Well, that's raw human nature, and Satan already beginning to enact his mindset onto them. And we have to work at training that out of them to control their human nature so that they don't let their tempers go, so that they don't fight and, and start creating war from the time they're almost they're born until they grow up and then continue it. I mean, everywhere you look, whether it's corporate politics and fighting or wherever it is, you got people, you got problems. Everywhere, anywhere. So that's kind of what God is talking about here. These are the transgressions they make against each other. And remember the thing that he wrote about in Adam and Eve's day when it came down to Noah. One of the greatest things or primary thing that God mentioned was the violence in the land. And it had gotten to the point that everybody was just killing everybody. And God can't stand that kind of conduct. So he wiped out all but one family. said, let's start over and see if you can achieve peace. But until he gets rid of Satan, and he is here to rule both with kindness and love but a fist of iron, there will not be peace. Now, when he is here and oversees it, there will be peace. Human nature will come under control. And Satan will be bound during that time so that he can't create the problems. But meantime, God's looking down again, just like he did in Noah's day, and saying, I'm seeing violence and fighting and war and discontent. What do people want? They want peace. They want security. They want to get along, but we have trouble doing it. We have trouble doing it right here. We've got two factions at least. Well, the other side is divided into several factions, really. They don't get along with each other all that well, except against a common enemy. That would be me. Uh, so... We have to deal with it until God takes care of the problem. And he said he will. We've seen the scriptures where he says he's going to take care of this problem we have right here. But he's looking down and he says, I am going to fix this. So he lays this burden on these different peoples. <coughs> so he says he'll send a fire on Moab and it shall devour the palaces of Kiriath and Moab shall die with tumult, upset, chaos, and tumult, and will die within that, with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Uh, that's war noise, sound of the trumpet coming. And I will cut off the judge from the midst thereof, and will slay all the princes thereof with him, says the Eternal. So that could be talking about the leadership of the Mormon church. I don't know that, but it could be.
if there are as many Moabites and Ammonites among them as I think there are. Verse 4, Thus says the Eternal, for three transgressions of Judah and for four. So now he turns from Israel's enemies and talks about Judah and Israel in specific. They don't get off either. For their transgressions, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have despised the law of the Eternal have not, and have not kept His commandments, and their lies cause them to err, after the which their fathers have walked. Now notice how this changes. Up to this point, talking about these Gentile or Israelite-related but still Gentile peoples who were not Jacobites, he talks about what they've done to each other and to Israel. But here when he addresses Israel, there's a change in tone. Here he addresses our disobedience to him because that is the greater infraction. Fighting among People fighting among themselves is a terrible infraction. But the biggest infraction is when we ignore or war and fight against God. Because that's the first and greatest commandment. The second is get along with each other. But the first one has to do with our relationship with him. And since he picked out Jacob and his sons to be Israel and worked with them specifically, he holds us more accountable. Not just our relationship with others, but our relationship with him. This is the key in terms of a punishment on Judah and Israel. And that's all he mentions here. That we and our fathers have not walked according to the law and the commandments and served our God. That's what he tells us to do. And that is the theme through all these prophecies. Now, we may get in here and talk about different peoples and so on and what God's going to do. And people look sometimes more at just how events are going to occur or just exactly when they're going to occur. And I've addressed some of those things. Uh, And that's okay. But let's not forget the main point. The main point is our nation turned from God. And he says what we need to do is rend our hearts and not our garments and turn to him with our whole heart. That's what the message of all the prophets is. I've said that many times. But it will probably be said more times. Because that is the key to everything. All the way through these prophecies, he warns, if you'll just turn to me... All these things are not going to happen. But if you don't turn to me, I'm going to do them. So he always gives mankind a chance. I read a Dave Hodges article just this morning, and he was talking about how this is all coming down on America and very soon, and how we're already controlled by communists. And one of the three things he said Americans could do to avert the disaster that is right in occurring and right in front of us, would be to turn to Jesus. And then he said he didn't hold out much hope. 
God doesn't hold out much hope either. He even tells us, Jeremiah, don't even pray for this people. They will not repent. You're wasting your time and eat energy to pray for this nation. There are no signs of repentance, and these horrors are now upon us. They're getting worse day by day by day, but they're here. More and more people dying from the vaccination, and it's going to get worse. So God's not turning it away. So he said, I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. Now we know Jerusalem is desolate and has been for many generations, the true Jerusalem. But the reference here is not to uh, the buildings and cities itself, but to the whole nation. He uses Jerusalem as a reference to Israel. Sometimes he doesn't even say Israel or Judah. He says Jerusalem or Samaria to include them all. So this is that type of reference. We know that the church is supposed to build back Jerusalem and the temple here at the end. But it will devour the government's and the palaces of those who rule over Jerusalem and Israel. Now, this is the promised land, and in that sense, the United States could be called Jerusalem or Samaria using those ancient terms. And the palaces, the buildings, the cities, and the government of our nation are going to be destroyed. So you have to translate what then was to the modern situation and see that that's what it's talking about because it's an end time prophecy it can't be referring to 2000 BC it has to be referring to right now so you interpret the terms from what they were back then to where it has effect today verse 6 Thus says the Eternal, for three transgressions of Israel and for four. So there was a division, of course, between uh, the twelve, the uh, ten tribes and then Judah, Levi, and Benjamin. So he addresses them separately, Judah and Israel. I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes. Now, when we look at Ephraim, this nation, as the leader of Israel today, here at the end time, I think he makes some very fitting comments here about our culture, our society, the way we think and the things that we have done and still do. So, think United States here as you read this about Ephraim, because Europe is part of Israel as well, but we've been the leader of NATO. We've been the leader of Israel overall. So what we do has affected the other nations of Israel and also the Gentile nations of the world. We're supposed to be the leaders in godliness on the earth today as a nation. And yet our sins and our transgressions are probably greater than any other nation on earth. 
I think I've said this before, but I've traveled to a lot of countries around the world. And no matter where you go, if you turn on a TV, whether it's just black and white and three channels, or whether it's more modern and upgraded, you'll find 90, 95% American programming. We influence the whole world. Our music, if you can call it that, is exported around the world. So, of all the nations, God says we're the behind, if you will. The worst. Now, maybe that's hard for proud Americans to accept, but we are the ones held most responsible. Because he chose us to be the leaders of the world, and we haven't done it. And we're the first to be destroyed here at the end. The beast power is rising as we see it. And we have been riding the beast, the other nations, and now they're about to buck us off and kill us. Revelation 17 says it very clearly in 18. They will destroy this nation. It is the one thing standing in the way of the new world government. And our own government has now sold us out to the communists. And we have communists ruling in Washington. And they're going to help oversee the purging and the death of most Americans. It's happening. I think they're going to start purging the military. I think I read around October 1st. They haven't been vaccinated. They're going to be court-martialed and probably dishonorably discharged. So the purge is about to begin. And that may cause all kinds of ramifications. We'll see. But notice what he says about us. They sold the righteous for silver. There's a great crusade in Washington and among liberals across this land to destroy Christianity to persecute Christians and anyone who uses that name. Communism does not use God's name. And these people don't either. Not only that, a lot of them are just out and out Satanists, worship Lucifer. So they want to get rid of anything that says anything about Christ or God. So they are persecuting the righteous and who is going to give them the most opposition on uh, the vaccinations? Conservative Christians. So they're going to come after them. And they've already said some of the biggest mouths in government, their highest mouths, have already said we should be classed as terrorists and exterminated if we believe in God and Christ. That's, that's on tape. It's been said by leading officials in, in Washington. Do you ever think you'd hear that? I never thought as a kid, as a young adult, I'd ever hear expressions like that. Now they're common. They're everywhere. So we were selling the righteous for silver. George Soros and some of those people are paying people to kill Christians already so they're taking money to do this and it's going to get more and more pronounced as time goes on and the poor for a pair of shoes 
they're not worth much, uh, you know, in their eyes. Sell them out for a pair of shoes. Don't pay as much to kill the poor as you do the wealthier, maybe. The pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor. What are the elites doing now, the very wealthy people? They're dumping on the poor. They're taking away the middle class. They're mistreating. It's been done over and over and over again. It's being done pretty much around the world. And now it's reached home. God bless this nation above every nation on earth. And we disobeyed him more than anyone else. He said we just looked like Gentiles to him in Ezekiel 16. No difference. Should be a vast difference between people who know God and have been supposed to be serving him and the other nations who don't know God. But God says, I, you look like the others to me. No difference. And turn aside, the, turn aside the way of the meek. It's the proud, the wealthy, and if you're meek and humble, uh, they'll destroy you. And a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. So he mentions one sexual aberration and perversion here, but it's not the only one. He, he just mentions one. And throughout our land, there are other things like that and worse that go on. They lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar, and they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. So, the clothes they put on are pledged, pledged out, bought on credit, uh, don't really own them, aren't really ours, but we have to have these fine clothes. We have to have our wine and our liquor and our drugs and things that can be harmful to society. We have to have these things, and we will do anything, including defile God and his altar, and even Protestant altars or others, in order to get what we want, to be able to have fine things. Isn't materialism basically the God of America today? Yet destroyed I the Amorites before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was strong as the oak tree. Yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath. He says, can't you remember your history, Israel? I took care of you. I destroyed your enemies for you. And now you've ignored me. We face now a great threat from Russia and China and Iran and all the other nations that are going to ally with them to come and destroy us. And we have no defense. Our own government has been destroying our military from within and getting rid of any conservative and good military leaders. And they've let transgenders and perverts of all kinds into the military and this is the kind of people you're going to send to, de to defend this nation? Come on. God says, why don't you depend on me? 
I'll take care of you. But you won't. Talks about the Amorites. Well, what did he do? He brought in David, a young lad, and killed this nine foot six inch, I think he was, giant with a stone to the forehead. God took care of it. The Philistines were out of there after they saw Goliath go down. David was good with a slingshot. Maybe God helped him on that one. I don't know. Why can't we trust the God of all the universe? Also I brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. And he destroyed them in front of them as they went in. I raised up your sons for prophets and of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not even thus, O you children of Israel, says the Eternal? I've done these things. I've even raised up men to tell you what's wrong and what you ought to do. What would you do with them? Well, they stoned the prophets, didn't they? I don't want to hear it. But he says it right here. But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophesy not. So I sent you the Nazarite to tell you what to do and how to do it. And you just said, Here's a bottle Go have fun. Leave us alone. And told the prophets, shut up. And if they wouldn't shut up, they killed them. Then God describes his emotion, his feeling, his chagrin about the situation. Behold, I am pressed under you as a cart is pressed Uh, that is full of sheaves, a heavily loaded cart. God says, you feel like that sitting on top of me. That's how I feel. In other words, you are a burden to me. You get an empty cart, and the oxen pull it quite easily. You get an empty pickup, and it goes 80, 85 pretty easily. When you fill it clear full of concrete blocks... It doesn't go that fast or that easy and may blow the tires because it's burdened beyond its capacity. So God says we're just like a heavy cart of harvest on his back. Now he wrote this book as a burden he's laying on our backs, okay? He says, you've been a burden on my back. Now, I am going to throw a burden on your back and see how you like it. How do we feel? How do you want your relationship with God to be? As a human being, with our human emotions, our feelings, we know there's... (coughs) A great God who created the universe, who created us, (coughs) with a great purpose of sharing his universe with us forevermore in peace, harmony, and happiness. That's his desire. (coughs) How do you want your relationship with God to be? 
Would you like to keep him happy? Would you like him to be pleased with you? Would you like for him to say down, look down and say, There's my son in whom I'm pleased. Or would you have, rather have him look down and say, Oh me, what a burden. i got to put up with that. I'm sure every one of us goes back and forth with God to some degree or another in those two extremes. But we need to work at overcoming and growing and being more like Him and according to His Word than we are. So that we are not a burden to Him. When He looked down before Noah, He said, Oh, what a heavy load. I live in peace with my son and the holy angels here. We, we did have some trouble. We had to fight Satan and the demons and conquer them. So God's had his war too. He's had his problems with Satan and the demons. And that, that one's not over yet. He's going to allow Satan to do his thing for the rest of this age Pin him up for a thousand years, turn him loose for a little while at the end of the millennium, and then bind him forever so that he can never affect anyone in the universe ever again. If you're going to have peace on earth and throughout the universe, Satan cannot be anywhere around. So scripture clearly says he's going to take care of that problem, and they won't have anyone to disrupt. But it had become such a load on God's mind that he says, I'm just going to wipe them out. And he says, man, I had this wonderful plan, this wonderful dream, and look what it's come to. Don't you think he said that back when Satan rebelled and took a third of the angels with him who turned foul, mean, rotten, hateful, and nasty? But God had given them Life, they could not be extinguished. He had made them that way. <coughs> and that's why he made us physical and able to be destroyed. Because since he had given them life everlasting when they were created, when they rebelled, he could not go against what he had done and destroy them. Now, what their final fate is, I do not know. He does talk about them being bound with chains and darkness. But it's up to him what he finally does with Satan and the demons. That's way beyond our pay grade to even consider or think about or worry about. But he made us human so that if we would follow his ways, he would give us eternal life, knowing that having experienced what we have here, we'd never want to come back to this. People say, would you like to live your life over? Uh, I don't think so. I'd probably have to go through the same stuff I've been going through. Let's just make some changes and extend it beyond, but let's don't go through it again. And I think that would be my mindset for eternity after you've cha been changed into spirit and live in a kingdom of peace and happiness and security with no fighting, 
would you want to go back and do this again? I don't think so. Perish the thought. So he's using this time to teach us the rebellion against him and his way of living is not a good way to go. And that's why all these prophecies that he's laying on these nations we're reading about right now, including Judah and Israel, are there so strong and he's going to put us through it and kill most people on earth so that when he does bring them back to life, they're not going to go, want to go through what they went through here in the next two, three, four, five years. They never want to go back there. It is going to be that bad. So he's giving us an eternal lesson. You know, we've all faced it, haven't we, in life? There were problems as you grew up. Problems between fathers and mothers and grandparents. Fathers between, I mean, problems between any and everybody in a family or a business relationship, whatever it might be. Churches have fought among themselves eternally. Still do. You can hardly get a Methodist to speak to a Baptist, even today, in some parts of the country. So it's all kinds of stuff like this that we have dealt with all our lives. It's just that God is going to make it so much worse in these next few years, and he's going to have all these people die, and we know from Scripture they're going to come up physically again, in the great white throne judgment, and just in their last memory, having gone through this, they're going to think, wow, I just died a horrible death. The next second in their consciousness, they'll be raised up into a beautiful, peaceful world, and they'll look around and say, how did this come about? And they're going to be ready to be taught that this is the way things ought to be. But it's not the way things were when you died. Now, let's get along. Let's live by God's laws for a change. You know, you and I, even though we understand those laws, and we know spiritually we should keep them, we still struggle daily to bring all our thoughts into captivity our activities, our voices, our minds, into where they ought to be. It's a struggle because of Satan and our very own nature. I really want to obey God in the Spirit completely, totally, and perfectly. But every day I struggle. In one way or another with self. Maybe you don't, but I sure do. And then I say to myself, oh, why did you think that? Why did you say that? <laughs> Maybe things will get a little better in the morning. God gives us a new chance every day, says the book of Lamentations. He forgives and moves on. He doesn't live in the past, and he doesn't want us to either. He wants us to move forward. Whatever is past is past. You can't do a thing about it. 
Willie Nelson did a song a few years ago called There's Nothing I Can Do About It Now. And he lists the things that he's done. And then he says, there's nothing I can do about it now. It's kind of a cute song. There's a real good lesson there. Uh, He's looking back and saying, I think he's absolving himself, really, and saying, I'm guiltless, and it's past, and I can't do anything about it too bad. But he did at the end say, I've tried to forgive. I've tried to make amends in some ways. I don't remember all the words. But there's nothing I can do about that anymore. You know, something you did 20, 30, 40 years ago, the person's either gone or dead or hates you or is still living with you. And there's not a whole lot you can do about the past. Except try, if they're still around, to make today and tomorrow better than what that was. So we have a struggle. And God is doing this for a purpose. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many are the temptations of the righteous. And he lays these on us so that we might learn that this isn't a good way to be. And we would never want to go back to it. That's why he says, count it all joy, these things that come upon us. Because they're teaching us eternal lessons. So that we'll never want to be that way again. But he feels it. His emotions, his heart, his mind. He wants us to be upstanding. He wants us to be upright, to be righteous, to be holy. And then we infringe on his ways. And that is a heavy burden on his emotions. Now, Christ expressed it a different way a little bit. When he was here on the earth, he said he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So what he saw going on around him while he was here on the earth made him sorrowful. And he saw grief in his own family. He saw grief in how people treated him. He had a lot of grief in how people treated each other and how religious leaders treated each other and the people. And on and on it goes. Humanity was the same then as it is today. There's nothing new under the sun. So they feel it Today, looking down on the earth, even as Christ felt it when he walked the earth, something has to change. Now, mankind thinks he has the answer. Under Satan, he will have a world government where a few very wonderful people rule all the peasants that survive, and it will be a wonderful world. We'll be in control, and we will allow no problems. And if you become a problem, we have ways of taking care of that. FEMA camps, guillotines, bullets. That's their thinking. Now that's the kind of society Satan would build. One that will self-destruct and wind up killing every human. Now, some of those who are following Satan today say that 90% of people ought to be killed. 
Satan's ahead of them. He thinks 100% of people ought to be killed because he knows God wants us to be in his kingdom and live in happiness and joy as he lived before he rebelled. And he despises and hates that with all his being that we could go and be part of the family of God where he used to be, not as a family member, but as a high-ranking angel living in the kingdom of God. We're slated to go there, and he's not. And he is so jealous of you and me, he can hardly stand it. In fact, he can't stand it. And he is very busy right now trying to work things out so that all humanity is completely destroyed. Now, the elites only want to kill 90%. But Satan wants us all dead. And what did God say about that? Except and unless he intervened, no flesh would be saved alive. Satan would get his wish. But God will intervene while there is still apparently a hundred million left, according to Daniel. Out of eight million. Not very many. Let's not be part of the cart the burdens God. He says in Zechariah that those, that remnant he calls, will be the apple of his eye. That we would bring great joy and pleasure to him instead of being a burden on him. And that should be our goal and our purpose, is to be as close to being an apple of his eye as we can get. Now, I've eyed apples on a tree a lot of times. And if I see that a bird's eaten half of it, that, that one doesn't keep and catch, catch and keep my eye. If I see one that's got two wormholes in it, that doesn't catch and keep my eye. If I see one that's withered uh, before it got ripe, that doesn't really turn me on. I'm looking for that one that's full-sized, turning red and ripe, depending on the variety, but looking ripe and looking whole. And, ah, I want that one. Why shouldn't I have that one? The whole tree is full of apples, and a lot of them have problems. Why shouldn't I get one I really like? Now, God looks down at the world. Imagine it as a big apple tree. What does he want? Dried up, worm-eaten, bird-pecked people? No. He wants those that would catch his eye. Now, we're all, to one degree or another, worm-eaten, okay? This is just an analogy. (laughs) We've all had our problems. But, you see, God can fix those problems. He has that ability. When I go to pick an apple, I can't fix those. They need to be thrown away, maybe. Or let the birds finish eating them, whatever. I can't fix an apple. I can just try to find one that's already good and and use it. But he has the capacity to heal. He can take all of us worm-ridden, 
packed, dried up things and change us by the healing of his Holy Spirit so that we can become the apple of his eye. Now, he says that, doesn't he? He says, I don't choose the mighty and noble of the world. When he looked at the apple tree, the mighty and the noble and the ones that are so good looking, he doesn't choose. He says, I take the weak and the base of man. Not the high and mighty, the weak and the base. Now, how do I know you're not perfect? Because God said he didn't call the mighty and the noble. He called the weak and the base. That would be us. <laughs> We're not mighty. We're not noble. We're not perfect. We've had all kinds of problems in our lives. I've talked to murderers who were learning the truth. I've talked to prostitutes who were learning the truth. I've talked to drug addicts, alcoholics, all kinds of people who had had all kinds of problems, been married and divorced five, six times, and got to the point they didn't bother to divorce and remarry, just kind of in the front door, out the back door. All kinds of people with all kinds of problems. Especially when the church was really growing and we were getting a lot of letters in Worldwide back in the 50s. Well, me, with me, the 60s and 70s. All kinds of people. And you know what? I saw some of those people overcome some of those problems. I saw them get a grip on it. I saw them come out of it. People that were smoking three packs a day, threw them away. Got rid of them. People who are alcoholics, who quit drinking. Quit drinking entirely. People who were drug addicts, who walked away and got away from it. Through either their own character or through uh, some help with rehab and from God. All kinds of things that I saw people overcome and change it. And that's what repentance is, is change. God says, repent and be baptized. What he means is, learn the truth and follow it, and don't go your old ways, go the new ways, and then I will grant my spirit. He says, I give my spirit to them who obey. So, repentance and baptism and being a candidate for the kingdom of God requires repentance and obedience, and then he will give his spirit. We don't have to be perfect before we're baptized by any means, or none of us would be baptized yet. <laughs> so perfection is not required. Baptism represents a new life, a beginning, like a baby, a conception of his spirit. And a baby has a lot to learn, doesn't he? So, he doesn't require perfection of us. He just requires that we start walking his way. 
and overcoming and growing and changing things that we've done wrong in our lives. Some of it's personal issues like those that I just mentioned. Some of it's doctrinal issues. All those things we, we're supposed to live by every word of God. And there's lots of words in here. And then there's a few words, as I said at the beginning, I thought were in here that aren't. But there's a lot here that we have to learn. You don't learn this in the Protestant or the Catholic or the uh, Hare Krishna churches or the Mormons or anywhere because they don't use the whole book. They use just a little bit of it. We are here to learn this book and learn to apply it in our lives. That's what makes God happy is because if we could, if we could do it, if we could actually every day live by every word here and not have any infraction of it, God couldn't help himself. There is one that is the apple of my eye. But it's a healing process from where we were when we began to learn truth. He says, learn the truth, and the truth will set you free. I saw people set free from a lot of habits, addictions, and things that they were suffering with by beginning to obey God. And they left some of those things behind. Now we've been around for a long time, and we should be getting beyond babyhood, and we should be becoming mature adults, spiritually speaking. But we still have our problems, just as adult human beings still have their problems in life. But on a spiritual life, we still got them too. But God is healing us, see, he took the weak in the base, the wormy, the, the bird chewed, and he's healing that and making us into apples that are pleasing to his eye. You've got to realize that God is capable of doing a whole lot that we can't do. And he says that he will work his salvation in us. We can't do it on our own. We can try to be good. We can try to be moral. There are a lot of people in the world that try to be good people. But they can't become spiritually mature unless they know God's way and His truth and have His help in overcoming the things that they need in their lives. So we're all a work in progress. I just don't want to be like a cart full of corn on God's back. I'd rather be one of those that has changed some things and is beginning to be an apple that's worth looking at, at least, and keep making progress until we get to be where he wants us to be. And he says that remnant, that's who he's speaking of there in Zechariah 1, or 2, 2 I guess it is. No, it's 1. In, no, it's, it, it's in two. Where that remnant that he calls together has been faithful and true and have been overcoming and growing and are still faithful to him. And when he draws them here, 
to begin doing his end-time work in earnest, they will have become the apple of his eye. Because that's who he's talking about when he says that. So we have a little time left to be what we ought to be. We need to be in high gear, turning to God and becoming that. So he says, you've been a burden to me, and I'm laying the burden of Amos on you. Verse 14, therefore the flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not strengthen his force, neither shall the mighty deliver himself. So you've pressed me down, you've burdened me, now you can't save yourselves. Speaking to the nation as a whole. This is his judgment. You can't get away from the punishment I'm sending. Neither shall he stand that handles the bow, and he that is swift of foot shall not deliver himself. So the military is not going to be able to do anything about the punishment that God is sending on this nation. He says there in Jeremiah 50 and 51 that he'll destroy the defense cities. Our fighters, our tanks, our all kinds of weapons of war won't save us from God's judgment. Neither shall he that rides the horse deliver himself. Well, there's, again, you translate uh, what they had back then to today. They used horses for warfare. They used a bow for warfare. Today, it's different. We have the planes and tanks and bombs and all those things. But he's referring to warriors, soldiers, those who would defend you will not be able to. They won't be able to even defend themselves because God's judgment is mighty. He that is courageous among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, says the Eternal. So there's a picture for you. He who thinks he's a big, we're the, what, the bold, the few, the marines, however they say it. We're the courageous, we're the mightiest, we're the greatest arm of uh, the military that there is. That's who he's describing here, not necessarily marines, but someone with that mindset. The bold, the proud, the few, however they say it. They'll flee naked. (laughs) When this comes down, I don't know how they'll get naked, but maybe they were in the shower and they hear the Russians and the Chinese are coming and they beat it out of there and head for the mountains stark naked. I don't know. But what it means really is they'll throw down their guns, they'll throw down their grenades, they'll throw down all this heavy encumbrance that they wear and they'll split for the hills because they're scared to death. That's really what it's saying. And it's talking about our military. This is talking about Israel. And we are Ephraim, the leader of Israel. And we are going to run like a bunch of cats with their tails on fire. That was Gideon, wasn't it, that did the foxes. He turned... Tied them together and set their tails on fire and ran them through the fields to destroy the crop. 
Those foxes were panicked. <laughs> and that's what he's saying here, just in a little different words. Our military will panic when they see what's coming against us. Because God says there is a coalition, a confederacy, even uses the word conspiracy, I think, in Isaiah 7 and 8. Don't fear it, fear me. You and I have the opportunity to fear him and not fear the enemies that are coming on Israel. We've already had Satan and his demons and false teachers come on the church and destroy it, spiritually speaking. So we've been through this, and we ran for our very lives, didn't we? To try to find where to go, what to do in this terrible time that's come on the church. We've been through it. Now it's going to hit our nation and our soldiers and all the people in this nation are going to have it hit them. But this time it's going to be physical destruction, not just spiritual. And we, if we obey God and serve Him, are going to be protected from it, led into Zion, and be the apple of His eye as an example to the world of the way a people ought to be and ought to live. He has told us, I am going to turn you into an example to the whole world of the way people should be. Does that scare you at all? That should petrify us. To look in the mirror today and see what we see and think God is going to use me as an example to the whole world of how people ought to be? I think I better quit right there. Enough said. we got work to do to become that kind of example to the world. we got a long way to go. We need to get with it. 